Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. Please re- uh, stand and let's read Titus chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. We come to the end of the book of Titus, but also a a lengthy journey through the pastoral epistles. I think it's been some two years that we've been walking through the truths of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy and Titus, guiding them in how to function as believers and as a church. This is how Titus ends under the inspiration of God. He says to the young pastoral leader there in Crete, and let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. And Father, it's our prayer today that you would please speak to us from your word. Father, we know even as we pray that, we know that is uh, your desire well beyond ours to speak to us. So, Father, beyond that, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to obey you. For, Father, we know uh, our desperate need for your guidance. And so, Father, please speak through me, because unless you speak, I have nothing at all to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today I want us to focus on avoiding being unfruitful, avoiding being Unfruitful. How, how do we avoid unfruitfulness? That's how verse 14 ends, that they may not be unfruitful. He has challenged Titus as the young leader to put leadership in place that produces good and godly fruit in their life. In chapter 1, he describes godly elders that would be fruitful in the things of God and that would produce fruit of blamelessness and integrity and uh, qualities of leadership becoming of those who lead the congregation. In chapter 1, the second part of that, he has challenged Titus to rebuke false teachers because that false teaching would bring disease and decay into the church, which would cause unfruitfulness because to to bear fruit for the kingdom of God it has to be uh, 
nurtured and maintained in the atmosphere of truth. Then you come to chapter 2 where he challenges him in light of the false teaching to speak sound doctrine and to get others to help admonish others and encourage others. Every age and every stage in life, we need the input and the uh, maturity level of others to come alongside us and to encourage us toward fruitfulness. And then in chapter 3, there's this emphasis of maintaining good works, which would be part of the fruit of a godly life. And so chapter 3 begins with some bad fruit. In verse 3 it says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration, rebirth, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So there he presents the the good news of Christ, the gospel, that we were in sin. We were living not just unfruitful lives, but lives that were producing rotten and bitter and horrible fruit. But then the loving kindness of God appeared in Christ. And he makes the statement, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So at that point in chapter 3, there is this casting down of good works. There's this, this casting down of earning any merit before God by what we do. And we would call that by doing good deeds or good, good works. There's that negating of any value of that. We know from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament that our righteousness is like filthy rags. Any good that we might do in and of ourselves is unacceptable to God. But once we become a believer, once we have put our faith and trust in Christ and we have received the blessing of knowing him and being regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit as it describes there, that which he produces within us begins to flow out of us in the form of good works that are now acceptable to him. Not to earn our salvation, but to express our salvation. It's 
not something we, we muster up and, and work hard at. It's something that flows supernaturally out of us by the renewing of the Holy Spirit and the, the new birth that he's given us. That changes the very essence of who we are and what we do. So it's not just a matter of changing habits. It's a matter of a change of the heart that makes our good works something very good in the eyes of God. That's why it says in verse 8, this is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So you find that phrase, that they should be careful to maintain good works in verse 8. Then in verse 14, he comes back and says, and let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. Now, if we kind of turn that verse upside down, verse 14, not in a bad way, but we start from the end of the verse before we look at the beginning, it says the whole purpose of what he's asking Titus to encourage and challenge the people to do is with the goal or the purpose of that they will not be unfruitful. Now we know in the scripture that it's God's desire that we be fruitful. You remember in John chapter 15 verse 5? Jesus said to his followers, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me shall produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Then verse 8 of John chapter 15 says, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So the theme of fruitfulness is anchored to our relationship with God in Christ. And as we are connected vitally to Christ, it says we will produce much fruit, not just some fruit, but much fruit. Without him, we can do nothing, but with him, we produce much fruit. And that's how we glorify God in in a very real, tangible sense is by bearing fruit. And so the desire here is that the church at Crete and any other local congregation would never drift into being unfruitful. So I want us to start there and and work our way into the passage from there. Unfruitful. How do we avoid being unfruitful? Well, first of all, we need to understand what that means. Uh, The literal meaning of that that word unfruitful, it's pretty obvious at first, uh, even looking at it in the the English language, much less looking at the the Greek word that is used there, but it means to be without fruit. Have you ever had a tree that just didn't produce what it was supposed to produce? It, It was unfruitful, it was... Without fruit, there was no evidence of of life there. 
It means to be barren, not yielding what it is to yield, to be destitute of that which it is to produce, contributing nothing, producing nothing. Some have suggested that that the Apostle Paul is, is speaking in essence of them becoming like their culture because in uh, verse 12 of chapter 1 it says that the people in Crete, one of their own philosophers has said that they were lazy gluttons. So he could be referring to becoming very lazy, uh, not just physically but spiritually and becoming unfruitful. So let's think about what that looks like as we move back to the beginning of verse 14 and move our way through. When is it that we can tell that we are unfruitful? And how do we avoid that? Well, first of all, we become unfruitful when we separate learning from living. We become unfruitful when we separate learning from living. Notice how verse 14 starts. And let our people also learn. And then it says two things that he desired that they would learn to maintain good works and to meet urgent needs. One of the subtle traps of the enemy is to get us to separate what we learn from how we live. There would be a disconnect there. Am I learning to expand my knowledge only or am I learning to deepen my life and to strengthen my life spiritually? So if if someone asks you, uh, have you been learning anything from the scripture lately? We might initially think, what have I retained in my mind uh, from a Bible study? What, what, what would it be that, that they're wanting to know? Well, here's the better question. Has, has your learning changed your living? Because learning spiritually is always to be transformational. It, it's not just about information It's about application. Now, wouldn't you agree that we live in an age of information overload? I mean, you can get all kinds of information. You can can have at your fingertip all kinds of sources of information. Now, I've been accused of being the source of a lot of useless information. And now I don't even have to work at it. It just bombards you. Everywhere you go, you get this information. And if if you think that having access to information, having access to knowledge and being able to regurgitate that in an impressive way is the end and culmination of all of life, then you've missed the whole point. 
Because the goal of, of learning Scripture and taking in Scripture into your life is, is not for information, it's for application. But there are times that we divorce learning from living and we think, well, if I have a lot of head knowledge, then, then I'm good, I'm good. But how many times have you met someone that, that knew a lot, but they didn't know very much at all? There was a man who took a first aid class, uh, how to be there on the scene to help people in times of crisis. He, he studied well. He, he aced the test. He was all set to go. He came back for the final class where they were debriefing about things, and, and they asked, have any of you had an opportunity to apply what you've learned? And he talked about, this particular man talked about coming up on a, an accident, seeing the needs, the cuts, the lacerations, all of that. He said, immediately, my knowledge kicked into place and I applied it. And they said, how did you apply it? He said, I remembered if I would put my head kind of down below my knees, I wouldn't pass out. Well, he really wasn't fruitful, was he? He had separated his learning from living and from giving help and assistance. It wasn't about him not being dizzy and nauseous, but it was about him offering help and wholeness to others. And that's what the church is to be about. And if we're not careful, we separate learning from living and we miss the whole point of why we learn. Now, a lot of us would say we learn more by doing than observing, and that's true. That's what this word means, to learn by practice or experience or acquire a custom or habit. So here's the goal of spiritual truth. Our head into our heart into our habits. When do I know that I've learned a truth from Scripture? When it has moved into my head, down to my heart, and into my habits. I have learned when it becomes lifestyle and when I apply the truth of God's word. That's why the Apostle Paul says in verse 14, let our people also learn to maintain good works and meet urgent needs. Learn by practice and habit, by application, assimilation, taking the truth of God's word that is placed in our head putting it in our heart that we may not sin against him, but also that we may live for him in our habits and our lifestyle. That's just a simple way to remember it. In my head, down to my heart, into my habits. Remember the challenge of James 1.22? Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
What is that saying? That's saying that the end of this service is the beginning of the application. That's saying it's not about just receiving. It's about implementing the truth of God's word. So one of the sad tragedies is when we separate learning from living and it never gets fleshed out in our lives. So he says, let our people also learn to maintain good works and to meet urgent needs, to learn by practice. Now, if you walk by a fruit tree that is a fruit-bearing tree, you will never hear it groaning and straining to pop fruit out on its limbs. It's operating out of its nature. It's life flowing through to the places where life needs to be. And so if we are going to learn to to maintain good works and to meet urgent needs, what that means is as a body, we just learn to be who we are. We, We learn to be people who are in Christ. And just think about the far reaching impact of our lives this next week as we move forward learning to maintain good works and to meet urgent needs. Can you imagine what God might do through us in a a week's time or even in an hour's time if we uh, refuse to separate our learning from living? Some of you may remember the game Trivial Pursuit. It could be one of the most rewarding games, one of the most frustrating games. I had a cousin that, that just could nail you with all kinds of trivia and, and not only make you think he was really smart, but make you think you were really dumb because everything he knew was something everybody should know that. Trivial pursuit. Just think about those two words. Could that not describe many people who are in church today? Just trivial pursuit. Tell me something new. Show me something I didn't know. Show me something that that will put me above others in my knowledge. No, it's not a trivial pursuit. It's a, a truth pursuit, and it's truth personified in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. I remember having an experience at seminary uh, back in the Stone Age when I was there uh, getting my master's. I was unable to attend a special uh, meeting where a speaker came that was pretty renowned that was going to speak. I saw someone who was able to attend afterwards, and I said, uh, how was the meeting? And he said, oh, it wasn't very good at all. He didn't tell us anything we didn't already know. And my first thought was, but did he tell you anything you're not already doing? It's not all about knowing. It's about doing. And so the Apostle Paul says to Titus, one of those final instructions, let our people also learn. So the question would be, are you teachable? Do you have a hunger to to learn more so that you can be more for the kingdom of God. 
We become unfruitful when we separate learning from living. But then in this passage also we can uh, detect this. We become unfruitful when we are inconsistent. When we are simply inconsistent. Let our people also learn to maintain good works. The word maintain used here means to resolutely or diligently practice this. Never, never stop to, to keep on keeping on maintaining good works. There is never a good time for a Christian to do a bad thing. There never is. There's never a right time to do the wrong thing for a Christian that they maintain good works. Which means as they, they go through their life, as we go through our lives, our focus is what good can I do today in the name of Christ? How can I express the goodness of God to someone today? How can I extend the grace and the goodness of God to someone who has yet to understand how much he loves them? Let our people also learn to maintain good works. The reality is we read the gospel in a nutshell there at the heart of chapter 3. The, the gospel, the good news should produce good works. So how do I reflect the reality of the gospel in my life? How do I reflect that I know Christ, the one who lived a sinless life, the one who died a substitutionary death on our behalf to pay for our sin, the one who conquered death and has given me life eternal because I put my faith and trust in him alone, by faith alone, I, I have done that. How, how do I express that? You express that by good works. And, and they, they flow from our lives because the, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. But we become unfruitful when we become inconsistent. When we, we fail to just express good works. Through the years as pastor, I've heard people say it, it is extremely hard to act like a Christian. Well, the reality is we're not supposed to be acting like Christians. We're supposed to be being a follower of Christ. It is hard to act like that. But once the Holy Spirit indwells us and, and the goodness of God in, envelops us, then, then as we walk with him and as we are abiding in him, we bear much fruit and that fruit is good works and the goodness of God pours out of us not because of our merit and our strength and our ability to, to act and perform but his ability to pour through our lives learning and subjected to him. There's a very important verse for us as Christians. All the verses in the Bible are but this one particularly is timely and in light of the context of this passage in James chapter 4 verse 17 James 4:17 says therefore to him who knows to do good 
and does not do it, to him it is a sin. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is a sin. Now, if we're not careful, we define ourselves by what we don't do. Have you found that to be true? We measure ourselves about people that are doing things that we don't do. And we shift our focus away from our own personal sin and our own personal challenges, and we we look down our nose at people and we say, well, I don't do that, check that one off. Oh, I don't do that, check that one off. And the, the checklist gets longer and we get more deceived about our own current standing with God. Just like the scribe and the Pharisee, I mean the Pharisee and the publican and the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18 where he came in, the Pharisee did, confessing everybody's sin but his own. I was pointing the finger, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. We define ourselves by what we don't do. But there are two types of sin. Sins that we commit and sins that we omit. There are sins of commission that we commit. There are sins of omission that we fail to do. So James chapter 4 verse 17 speaks to this issue of good works. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is a sin. So just as sinful as doing that which is wrong and bad is failing to do that which is good and right when given the opportunity to do that, having the knowledge and the understanding that that's what we are to do. That's why this is so critical in our lives. For us to become inconsistent in any way negates the truth of the gospel that we are trying to spread to those around us. And one way to express the goodness of God and the reality of the gospel is by good works, which means not just omitting that which is bad, but embracing that which is good. Now, where are some verses that would support this? Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. It's very interesting in the context. It's an echo of Titus 3.5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is the gift of God, not of anything we have done. Then it says in verse 9, not of works, lest any man should boast or anyone should boast. What if you got a gift from somebody and and there was a post-it note on there that said, you owe me and had the amount of the gift. 
That's not a gift. What if on that post it said, you can either pay me this amount for this gift or you can uh, do this list of things for me in order to have this gift? It's not a gift. A gift is free. It's given without strings attached, as we would say. And so here it's referring to the gift of God. Remember Romans 6, 23? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We earn death, we're given life. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. But then it says in verse 10, remember, he's writing in Ephesians to those who are in Christ. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This new people that that God has put in place through Christ that are in him, he has planned throughout eternity what we would be doing, and that is good works that he foreknew and foredetermined that we would walk in because we are his workmanship created for good works. So here's the reality. Anything good that comes out of your life as a Christian is a result of God's goodness not yours. And we never get to a point where we are good enough to be accepted by God. And so we don't earn salvation by good works. We express our salvation by good works. But we become unfruitful when we become inconsistent. Therefore, it's important that we maintain good works. Do we do that when people are looking? Yes. Do we do that when people are not looking? Yes. We are to maintain good works regardless of an audience or not. We are to do that which is good because we serve a God who is good and the good news produces good works. So we don't want to separate our learning from living. We don't want to become inconsistent lest we become unfruitful. And then the third and final way that we become unfruitful in this passage, there in verse 14, we become unfruitful when we withhold good from others. When we withhold good from others. Let our people also learn to maintain good works and to meet urgent needs. Now you recall in verses 12 and 13, he's telling Titus, this is what my plan is. This is whom I'm sending to you so that you can come to me in verse 12. But in verse 13 he says, send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. And so he's somehow drawing from that and saying, just like you met the urgent needs for these men to travel and to serve Christ, guide the people, model for the people 
how they can be used by God of maintaining good works and meeting urgent needs. I've had people say, you know, I, I would be willing to meet needs, but I just don't know where there are any. Well, the reality is, if God has equipped you to meet a need and you're walking with him, he'll take you where the needs are. He'll, he'll meet needs through you. So when God blesses us, our mindset should be not just that God gave this to me, but God longs to give this through me to someone else. A man that I've immersed myself in his life for the past several years is Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who lived in the 1800s. They say he's the, the prince among preachers. He was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit. I mean, he preached from the Metropolitan Tabernacle from that pulpit for years and thousands came to hear him, etc. He he sold so many uh, books and the penny pulpit went around the, the globe every every week of his sermons and all this stuff. He could have been valued at millions and millions of dollars even in that day. But in the course of his ministry, when when he was blessed with extra income, he would immediately think, where can we invest this in the kingdom? I remember years ago in a meeting, someone asked here at our church, would it be wrong to ask God to bless our people that we might be a blessing to the kingdom? And that's not a bad prayer. If our goal truly is to be a blessing to the kingdom. And so here that's what he's talking about. Being a a blessing to the kingdom. Meet urgent needs. The gospel produces goodness. And that goodness is aware of needs. And meets needs in the lives of others. But too many times when we see a person in need. Rather than seeing the need we see a nuisance. And not a need. But here it says we are to meet urgent needs because we become unfruitful when we withhold good from others. 1 John chapter 3 verses 16 through 18. Talks about true love. Now, I know that the chapters and verses were added centuries later. But in the economy of God, think about the truth of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting eternal life. And then 1 John 3.16 says this. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The question would be, 
Do you love 1 John 3.16 as much as you love John 3.16? I love John 3.16. It says, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's good news for all of us because we're part of that whoever. Here it says the same thing at the beginning of the verse. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we, we shout, amen, yes, we know that love. But Then it says, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, for the body of believers. That changes the whole perspective, doesn't it? We're to be like Jesus. If we are loved by him, we are to love like him. We are to reflect his love. And then it goes on and even gets more pointed in its message. It says, but, in verse 17, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him How does the love of God abide in him? Think about what it's saying there. But whoever has this world's goods and seeds his brother in need and shuts his hand, no, shuts his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? It's not a matter of the hand. It's a matter of the heart. Long before anyone closes their hand to someone in need, they've already closed their heart, not just to the one in need, but to the one who loves us. We have a heart issue with God. Then he says in verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let us not love just with our words, but with our works, in deed and in truth. And so the way that we express the love of God is by meeting urgent needs. What kind of need does that that mean? It means any need that is placed before us that is urgent and someone needs We are to give. You remember what the early church was marked by? They had all things in common and there were no needy people in the early church because there were no greedy people in the early church because they met urgent needs. Here on the Isle of Crete, many who came to Christ would be shunned by others. They would have significant needs. It might affect their employment, etc. And they were to meet urgent needs among them and outside of their body. They were to meet urgent needs. So we are to be a conduit of compassion and kindness to others. The problem is many times we want to be a container of God's compassion and kindness rather than a conduit of compassion and kindness to others. So is your life making a difference in the lives around you? Is your life making a difference in the lives around you? Years ago, I heard someone say, you should live your life in such a way that when you're gone, you'll be missed. 
Not that you're creating dependence upon you. Not that you're putting on a show as the Pharisees when you give and you sound the trumpet. Not that kind of thing. But are you living your life in such a way that you're investing in the lives of others by meeting urgent needs to the extent that when you're gone, you'll be missed? Apostle Paul says, let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs with the end result that they may not be fruitful. So I ask you today, are you living a fruitful life? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay. Well, let's define it scripturally. Are you maintaining good works in your life? Are you meeting urgent needs in your life? And that, that's not just monetary, that's emotional needs and spiritual needs. Are we living our lives in that way? Are we really fruitful? And together, are we fruitful as a church? There's that that constant challenge of moving deeper in maturity but leaving our arms open to those that Christ would bring in among us. Part of the good works would be to make the good gesture towards someone to invite them to come and experience what we experience as believers together. Maintain good works and meet urgent needs. Can you think of a more urgent need than the need for Christ? And the need for a body of believers surrounding you in your life. Can you imagine anything more urgent than being plugged into the kingdom of God? And if that's the most urgent need, then that ought to be the need that we're trying to meet. Lest we become unfruitful. And so he says, maintain good works as a lifestyle. Meet urgent needs regardless of how you define yourself, how I might define myself, we're unfruitful if we don't. The first part of Acts 10.38 captures my attention. It says in Acts 10.38, I'm just going to read the first part. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good. Then it talks about what that good did. It it healed, it delivered people from the devil for God was with him. It's one of those verses that mentions the Trinity. God, referring to God the Father, anointed Jesus, his son, Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit, and with power who went about doing good. How do I know that the triune God is working in me and through me? I will go about doing good. I will follow the example of Jesus. I'll do good when it's convenient. I'll do good when it's costly. 
I'll, I'll do good when it's uncomfortable. I will go about doing good because that's who Jesus was and is and that's who the Holy Spirit longs to produce in us to go about doing good. You want to experience the power of God? Go about doing good. Exalt Jesus with a fruitful life lest we become unfruitful. So today, I just want to ask, are you abiding in Christ? Have you connected with Christ? Do you know him? Have you been born into the kingdom of God and and connected to Christ? Are you in him? If you're not, I'd love to talk to you about the process of, of coming to know him. And so as we partake of the Lord's Supper today, it's a reminder of the cross and how desperately we need what Christ provided for us on the cross, the forgiveness of our sin, the, the eternal bliss and heaven that we can have with him if we repent and turn from our sin and turn to him. So if you've done that and you've committed your life to Christ and you are in him, then today, please, Join us at the table, even if you're not a member of this church. If you are a believer who has gone public with your faith in baptism and you are connected to a church, even if it's not this one, please join us at the table. If you don't know Christ, please consider your relationship with him today. And if there is something in your life, some unfruitfulness that would hinder you freely partaking of the table in a worthy manner, then we would ask you to abstain and get that right with God and then approach the table. But now we celebrate the cross and the invitation is open for those who would like to come to know Christ. I'll be here at the front ready to visit with you and to pray with you. If you have a special urgent need to be prayed about, would you come and let us do that? Let's stand together and pray. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.